Hi, you're listening to The Get, the podcast about finding and keeping great marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. I'm Erica Seidel, your host. You know those people who so clearly revel in what they do and are so knowledgeable on both the big things and the little things? Today, I talk with a CMO like that. Her name is Kristen Hambleton. She's the CMO of Mineral Tree, which is a SaaS company in the accounts payable and payments automation space. Kristen spent the last several months steering marketing through an acquisition. She was previously CMO of Marketing Evolution and CMO of eVariant, which ended up selling to health grades. Before that, she was VP of Marketing for Neolane, which sold to Adobe. You'll hear hard-won advice for embarking on a scale journey. In particular, you'll hear about budgeting for marketing during growth. How do you communicate to a CEO and CFO that you are investing smartly without overspending? How well are you connecting the marketing budget to the growth strategy? You'll hear about sharing with the rest of the company leaders what marketing is saying yes to and what marketing is saying no to. And when does it make sense to give budget back to the CFO versus advocate for more budget? You'll also learn about hiring for hypergrowth and what to do when you have multiple marketing functions but can't yet justify hiring one person for each function. Let's get right into this. Kristen, I am so glad to have you here. Um, would love to have you just share some advice for a CMO embarking on a scale journey. And I know in this question, we're kind of tapping into some hard-won lessons from your own experience scaling marketing at many companies. Can you talk through that? Sure. So I think uh, in terms of scaling, there's what you do at a private company versus what you do at a public company. But I think some of the same rules apply. And I've spent, I would say, the better part of my career more on the private side, although obviously within large companies trying to scale divisions or verticals, et cetera. But uh, on the private side, one of the things in terms of embarking on the journey I first would recommend to marketers is figure out the scale of the scale, if you will. Not all scale is created equal. Um, so as an example, going from zero to $10 million is very different from going to 10 million to say 30 million, and then even 30 to 50 million, and then 50 to 100 million. And the reason that they're different is you're trying to figure things out. If we all had the answers, the minute that we launched a company or that founders started companies, there would be no process of scaling. So I think of in the beginning, if you're really starting in your scale process, and usually that's when you're at an earlier part of growth, you're doing the basics. And one of the most important thing is just figuring out who you're targeting, uh, what works. And you could get away with trying a lot of different things at this part in scale because you just don't know much yet. Sure, you're going to come with whatever experience you have or um, what people have tried already, but it's usually not that much. Compared to, say, 10 to 30 or 10 to 50 million, that scale is very different because you will have, at this point, figured out what your ideal audience is. You will have figured out what works and doesn't work. And now it's really about focus and refining all of those things. I would also say that you're adding other elements into the marketing mix. Uh, you might have been very demand focused early on or sales enablement focused, but now in this range, you have to be all things across marketing and content plays a huge role at this point because your sales team is probably scaled at the same level. So content and thought leadership 
to give some of that air cover to the very focused demand generation that you're doing. And of course, it also means at this point that you are religious because you know what the message is. You, you know what your brand promises. You're being consistent and focused. And you're, you're getting into a groove and you feel it. You really, I feel it anyway. I know when we're firing on all cylinders. Then at the next stage, uh, 50 million and above, you're just taking all of the things that you just did in the last phase and multiplying them. I think what's really important at this point, probably more so than even earlier on, is what you're not going to do. Because at this point, people expect you to do everything and try everything. And I actually think that's a recipe for disaster, even though people would think, okay, you have more budget, you probably have more people at this point. Right. But uh, you can't split the baby more ways than you need to. You got to keep doing what you know works. And as I like to say, you know, you kind of have to adopt the superpower of saying no. And really socializing, I've really learned that lesson early on to socialize with my peers on the leadership team and, and usually a layer down of, here are the things we're going to do. But by the way, here are the things we're not going to do. And I make sure it's in writing, in a deck, and I remind people of it. Sure, we need to be flexible and stuff changes, uh, whether it's within the business or even macroeconomically or, or a pandemic happens or a tragedy like 9-11, so you have to flex but if all things being equal, you have to really remind people of what you're not going to do. That is the way you scale because you have to be not only effective, you have to be really efficient in what you're doing. And marketers know this better than anybody, right? We're, we're asked to do a lot with not a lot often. So you're not going to get to scale if you are saying yes to everything and splitting your team and your resources and your time and your budget across too many things because you've already proven the things that work and don't work. One caveat, make sure you always keep some percentage of we got to try new things in there. And I know that sounds a little um, contradictory to focus, focus, focus. Uh, I'm more saying there's got to be 10% or 15% or some amount of your team and your resources and something where hey, there's this cool new thing called podcasts we need to try, which a few years ago, right? You can't not, because sometimes trying those things ahead of others will give you a unique and distinct advantage. Just be prepared to fail because you just don't know, which is why I recommend it can't really be more than about 10 or 15% on this experimentation. And I love your point about educating about what you're not doing, because I think so much of a marketing leader's role is about kind of constantly, you know, I call it the marketing of marketing, but constantly like kind of sharing with the organization about what's going on and what you're doing, why you're doing it, what results you're having from those activities. But also to your point, what you what you don't do. And I'm curious your take about when you do and, you know, as you do scale, imagine, you know, your budget gets bigger and say you're, you're choosing to actually planfully grow your budget. So how do you kind of communicate out to a CEO and a CFO that you are investing without overspending? And, and you know, I don't know, how, how do you think of the, the opposite side of it when your budget does grow and you want to be planful about that? The way I like to do it is I always like to start with total addressable market and look at where we are penetrated and what's still left to go. And then I tend to do a real swag on, you know, a real estimate on, depending if it's a demand funnel versus account-based marketing, you know, how much we actually need to generate 
uh, and look at what we think from a program's perspective is realistic. And if you have a baseline or even an estimate and some industry benchmarks to start with, say you start with 50 or $100 at a cost per lead, I'm just totally swagging it. If you knew nothing else, you could start to back into about from a program perspective you need. I do that also combined with my total addressable market in terms of the number of accounts. So as an example, if you have a million accounts you can go after, um, you know only 10% of the market is penetrated, that means 90% you can go after. From a demand funnel perspective, how many people do you need to touch to get to the number of deals you need to based on the revenue number that you're given to produce? Now, from an account-based perspective, so those which you have maybe small total addressable market. Uh, I was in one market where we only had 300 total accounts that existed. And one third were in the buying process at a time. And the sales cycle was 18 months. So you only have 100 really accounts you could go after. You need to look at touches um, across the buying group, how much you need to engage with them, how much the touches would cost you, you think to engage with those people, to do the same exercise of how many times realistically do I need to touch that buying center across all of the contacts? And that comes up with the programs. Now, let's not forget about the people. And I think this is really a little bit of the art of budgeting. In B2B marketing right now, benchmarks are about 50% program, 50% people. It actually errs a little more towards program, like 55, 45. And to be honest with you, in the last 20 years, that really hasn't moved much. What I have found is in some years, even in the same role, you will find you don't even have enough people to spend the money you have, which seems really odd as a marketer, given we always complain about the budgets, but you can throw that money away if you want to. Or what I've done in the past is, you know, I share that with my CFO and I said, sure, we have this money. I'm actually not going to spend it because I can't spend it on the things that we know work and experimentation. And so I share that because to say I'm being mindful of what works and doesn't work. You know, you need people to manage programs since it's deliver content. And if you don't have them, and the reason I actually share that with my CFO is so that I kind of protect myself a little bit so I don't lose my budget the next year. This is actually great timing this year. Here we are, 2021. I'm very fortunate. I had a fabulous year. My company just got acquired. All things are great. We're hiring. We have money. And we're in budgeting season. And I'm very efficient and effective with my budget. I'm at a point where I know what works. My team is firing on all cylinders. What's really interesting is next year, events are back. And we all know that events are the single most expensive cost per lead item. So I'm actually fighting for more budget than I normally would, which in the past, I usually come to some happy medium. But I know everything is going to ramp significantly like we've never seen before with trade shows. So those are the combinations of things. Back to the people part. I'm also making the case of more shows, you need resources to manage those shows. And sometimes you have to make choices on people versus programs. Sometimes you have too many people and not enough dollars. So that's where the art comes in. I usually find pretty consistently it is 55 program to 45 people. It really doesn't vary much. I tend to be a little weird and I, I would trade 
dollars to get people versus programs, because I know if you have really talented, committed people, you can do amazingly creative things without money. Not everybody feels that way. Um, that's just what I have found consistently. But again, I'm sure people have different approaches. I just know that if you can get a fantastic marketer in who can do an amazing program, piece of content, whatever it is, it more than pays for itself in terms of some programs. Now, of course, there could be exceptions. You could be in a market where it's a trade shows only and, and that's just the way it is. And I get that. But to be honest with you, I've marketed to about every industry and every functional group. And I've pretty much just found it that I, I err a little bit more on people, which, by the way, isn't always possible because there's often headcount restrictions. People think you're trying to build a kingdom. But as it is, marketers do usually three jobs a piece anyway. So again, that's just my personal choice. Sometimes when it comes down to it, like in my budget for next year, I feel like I'm a little light on people. And if I had to trade a little bit, I would trade a little more on the people side right now. Yeah, you remind me of this person I talked to who said, oh, I'm a CMO who thinks like a CFO. I, I, I forget if it was you, but if it, it was, yeah. yeah. But but I, I like that. And I'm just picturing you like talking with your CFO. I guess people might wonder if you're going to give back budget or recommend that it go to sales or whatever yeah. in one you know cycle. Mm. Do you ever have a hard time asking for like well, what you're doing right now, you know, is asking for more budget for a valid reason for the next cycle? Like, does, does that ever shoot yourself in the foot to kind of give money back? So I've had it shoot me, shoot myself in the foot when I haven't been really crystal clear with my boss. You know, it's usually the CEO and the CFO of why I'm doing what I'm doing in the past. I'm just like, oh, I'm going to be a good doobie and I'm going to come in under budget. And then everybody's happy you're under budget and then you get less budget versus, listen, it's, it's, and it usually happens around Q3 where you figure this out. That my experience, I usually don't find it before that. Uh, but usually around Q3, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to run under budget. And if I don't end up hiring X, Y, and Z, I can't even spend the money. And I start giving hints that I'm going to come under budget. And it's not like they take some pot of money and they go give it to somebody else. It's more what it does is it gives it the business breathing room and it allows the CFO to know that if they have to make a decision someplace else, they're going to have a little bit of room. So it's not like I'm like, here's $200,000 or 300, you know, you have it. It's more, this is where I'm thinking I'm going to come in. And they're like, okay, you know, that's helpful to know. And, and, and again, I explain it. I'm essentially rationalizing, and I hate to say this, doing CYA so it doesn't come back to bite me next year. <laughs> I mean, really, that's... But this also goes to a really good point about the, your CFO, which is I just can't even imagine a better relationship that I need to have in terms of trust to be able to spend and manage the money and have their backs as much as they have mine. And so I have had the good fortune, but I've also made it a priority to engage as much as possible with the CFO and the finance team to kind of over communicate, which, you know, takes time and, and effort. And, you know, in addition to all the other things you're trying to do, but it helps them do their job better. And then God forbid, you know, I ever make a mistake or get in a jam. I have found it usually kind of pays for itself in terms of they get it, you're human, 
they know you're trying to do the right thing. Every once in a while, things get screwed up. But for the most part, they know that you're trying to manage the money effectively and efficiently. Can you talk about tying extra budget to growth strategy a little bit more? You know, like I know the company is expanding, you know, you know, I might want to go into new markets or maybe you acquire a business and now you have five products and not one product. So how should a CMO think about expanding their budget with that, you know, in, in that kind of situation? Is, in it, is it a kind of like, oh, you know, we're buying a company that's going to double our size, so my budget should double? Or, or is there like, a, yeah, I mean, that's a kind oh, of fast way can, to think I about it. I can dream, <laughs> Erica. We can all dream. <laughs> By the way, usually when you buy companies, even though, there, I mean, there's different strategies for M&A, mergers and acquisitions, but I don't think that they're mutually ex- exclusive, right? Often you do an acquisition for growth. So it's a gr- what they call a growth acquisition, or you do one for efficiencies. Now, what's interesting is I always find even with the growth ones, they want efficiency. You know, you could say you're buying revenue, but there's, they're always looking for efficiencies. But um, in terms of what I think is critically important, and I will even say, you know, even at this point in my career, I'm still learning. I am doing a better job, I think now, with what I would call the triumvirate of my partners, uh, which is sales and product and marketing. I was always joined at the hip with my sales leader. I think with my product leader, I've I've always joked that I'm not smart enough to market a product I don't understand. So I've always been close to product, but I've done a much better job more recently, I would say, with my triumvirate. And the three of us would decide where we're going to tie budget. Because uh, last year, we actually acquired two companies and it was two new platforms we had to adopt. And unless I know in the product roadmap, as an example, where they are planning on parity or not, you know, that's going to warrant a discussion on, do I need another product marketing manager? Do I need new collateral? Are we going to put it under one brand? Uh, naming, don't forget naming. What, what's that going to... So, but also with sales, then do sales need to change how they're organized? Do they need to change their go-to-market? And so I think it's very much, it's not a conversation I can do in isolation. I don't think it's one I can even do with just sales. I think it's one where the three of you need to sit down and say, okay, this is what we have. I very much see it of this is what we have to work with in terms of assets. You know, this is the products we have. This is what the roadmap. Uh, these are the, this is what the selling team looks like. This is what the marketing team looks like and, and where we are in our maturity. And then it's, okay, here's the target. I'm making this up for next year that we need to get to. How are we going to get there from a go-to-market? Are we going to expand our verticals? I mean, there's only a handful of ways you can grow, right? You grow through acquisition, as we mentioned. You go to uh, new vertical markets. You go to new buyers within the same vertical. Somehow, if you have a different offering that you can, if you're selling to finance, then maybe you can sell to HR. I'm making that up, but that's possible, you know, in like human capital management. Actually, when I was at Kronos, we were the time clock people. Then all of a sudden, we expanded to do more HR, right? Or you can expand geographies. And so you kind of have to pick. You can't. And by the way, a lot of times it starts off, yeah, we're going to do all those things. And I'm usually the one that says, oh, that's great. But um, let's talk about if you had to pick and choose, what would be the priority? Often those conversations are one of sizing and timing. Okay, yeah, if we want to do all those things, let's the three of us talk about it. Which one can we go the fastest at? 
And which one do we think we have the most success? And which one helps us get us to our goals both fast, but also in a doable way? And not to be forgotten right now is as we run into other times, depending on what the economy is doing, if it's right now a strategy that requires, you know, hiring 50 people really fast, you know, good luck with that because you, you just can't hire people right now just because of the, the unemployment rate and, and people's availability and the competition. So that's why it's really important to have those three groups, you know, kind of the three leaders together and say, what is the go-to-market strategy? And then from there, I can decide, okay, given that, where do I put the budget? No, that was a long-winded conversation, but um, I'm going through it right now. I'm living and breathing it. So uh, I thought it was, uh, you know, wanted to just say that for me, it's still something I'm learning, right? Yeah. You know, old dogs can still learn new tricks. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you brought up hiring, Kristen. Would love to hear your take on hiring during hypergrowth. Like you said, everybody's struggling with it. On the recruiting side, I'm struggling with it. You know, it used to be that if I wrote to 100 people, 80 would get back to me like right away. I'm sure it's the same thing across the board. So how do you think of covering multiple functions with fewer people where one person might do double duty? Can you talk through that and your take on hiring during hypergrowth and how to make the best use out of a smaller team? Yeah, I just have found in B2B marketing in general, and I don't know if this is true in other functions because I've lived and breathed marketing my whole career, but it feels like we have a hundred different disparate jobs that we need to do that probably require 50 different skill sets. But by the way, that's why I love what I do, because I don't like doing the same thing. I get bored. So it's a good thing, but it's also okay if maybe you're a small startup and you're five, 10 million in revenue, you know, you're not going to have a team. It's 10, even 10, 20 people. I mean, depending on your investment model, but you're going to have a handful of people and you have to think, I mean, I, just off the top of my head in no particular order, it's okay. Somebody's got to build sales collateral. Somebody's got to do a website. Somebody's got to do email campaigns. Oh, somebody's got to do trade show. Like you could just really quickly, all of a sudden you're at 20 different tasks and those skill sets just naturally don't come in people, right? Because people usually specialize when they're starting off in their career and so what I try to do when I go into an organization, existing organization, is I try to see what's there and try to blend roles that might fit together. Even if the person's not doing additional functions, try to add them, see if that's an area for growth that they're interested in. Because if you try to make them unnatural, then what will happen is when you try to hire for the other roles, it just won't work. So I really try to think about what's natural. So I'll give you an example. Um, I often have to uh, have some, some flavor of partner marketing. Earlier on in maturity in companies, I don't always have the luxury of having a partner marketing person. And def different than channel. So they may be referral partners, but they're not hardcore channel where it's you know, obviously, then that's like the first person you're hired if you're all through channel. But I'm talking, you know, if they if maybe they refer 15, 20 percent of your revenue, you need someone to support them. I have found, though, I can't give a whole headcount to it because think about it. The other 80 percent of my business is direct and I got to support a team of salespeople. What I have found is that because product marketing knows the product really well and I think happen to be Swiss Army knives of the organization. 
I tend to actually marry that into a product marketing role in the short term until I can get coverage because they can talk the talk, they can walk the walk, they know what the partners need. Um, and by the way, if there's some kind of co-marketing execution things, it can kind of be punted off to a demand person or someone else doing execution, but there's somebody at least there that's managing the partner if we need to. I also find that with content, that if you can't dedicate a content person, which is criminal, but if you can't, sometimes you can marry it into a PR role. I have it now, actually. I have a uh, I just happen to have an outstanding person that I, marries. He manages partner content and product marketing. Obviously, he has people under him, but a lot of it is about the content. So he's managing overall content strategy for the different audiences that those serve with kind of one view. So th that's how I try to get creative. But at some point, you know, you get to a breaking point where, you know, this is not tenable anymore. But you can prove that through growth. You know, if the partners are growing, obviously you need somebody who can manage that. The other way around things, of course, you know, people can use contractors, you know, that contractors, agencies, vendors, whatever, um, you know, which marketers use on a regular basis anyway. You could certainly do that either as a stopgap or as your overall strategy. Some people just like to outsource certain things. I tend to uh, outsource my PR, but I make sure that I, either myself or somebody else manages it. That's just a particular thing that I like to do that's a preference. And it does save on headcount, precious headcount. And usually there's some flexibility based on the PR agency or person that you use where you can flex on budget if needed. In terms of hiring, I'm in the boat with everybody else. Um, in terms of secret sauce and attracting people, we tried to go hard on our networks because we do know that people who are referred usually have a better track record. We also make it a priority meeting with our recruiter and or HR person, depending on who's doing the recruiting, that we're meeting two, three, four, five times a week with them. And we're also giving them like profiles, which I think is incredibly valuable. Uh, in recruiting, sometimes they call them calibration re resumes, which are... Um, here are the exact three resumes of people that would be perfect for our job and share it with your HR, your recruiter, and tell them why. And by the way, those three people may not be available. Often I'll do it as LinkedIn profiles and I'll just go in and look people up and I'll say, oh, this person's perfect because they have this and this. And what that does, it just allows us to go a little more focused again on the search and hope that we find like people. But like everybody else, we're struggling the same thing. We do hope that we do it through our team and through our network and attracting people with our overall kind of value proposition as a company in terms of high growth and benefits and team and all that good stuff. But again, it's, it's um, you know, we're in it with everybody else. I love your idea of giving the recruiters the calibration profiles. It makes me remember this one conversation I had with a, a it was a... <laughs> It shall remain nameless, but a, a large company that was hiring their first marketing technology VP. And they tried on their own. And then they came to me and the HR person was like, yeah, I've been working on this for a while. But actually, I have no clue what a MarTech person is. Mm. So she had been actually wasting time because she hadn't. She, I, I think she felt like, oh, I should know this, you know, like mm, I didn't want to sure. ask the stupid questions, you know. 
And that's, and I ended up saying like, oh no, I'm not going to do this surgery. I didn't have time or whatever. But I said, well, why don't you just sit down? It's the same thing that you do. Like, you know, sit down and very granularly look at, you know, your calibration profiles and so that you can kind of do your, <laughs> it's like lookalike modeling, you know, exactly. there. Well, and it helps because we, we can't expect recruiters as good as you are, Erica, well, to know everything that's in our head about what we want and need. And in this market, what we might be able to overlook. And I'm not saying compromise. Uh, give you an example. We are hiring a marketing specialist right now. Every other role, I think, on our website right now is remote because you can work from anywhere, except our marketing specialist role. And, and it's very conscious. And the reason that we can't overlook that is that is the person that's going to be managing all our trade show assets and shipping that stuff out and doing logistics. And and it matters because you can't have your um, all your trade show assets all over the country, right? It's, so it seems like such a simple little thing, but having managed that remotely on multiple occasions and knowing the challenge of that. Now, doesn't mean this person needs to be in the office, by the way, but, you know, having it remote, even just knowing what you have in inventory, um, you know, us marketers, you know, we, only, we don't even know what we have in the marketing. That's the joke, the big joke, the marketing closet, right? So I actually have a habit of taking pictures of everything so that if you are remote, you can at least make decisions. But again, it, it's a tiny little thing. And if we run into a jam and need B and we need to do a storage unit near them, and that's the approach that we take, that's what we'll do. But I, again, to your point, it's just helping your recruiter or whoever it is that's doing your, your hiring so they're as smart as possible. I also think that it's up to the team. I put it, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, on our team, because it's the person we're going to work with every day. And I would not trivialize or minimize that. Your team should be reaching out every single day to try to find somebody. That's kind of an expectation of mine, but I haven't seen anybody on my teams not do it because it behooves them to do it. But it's, you can't just mail it in and think it's all going to happen through the recruiter. Mm -hmm. um, hey, you see a cool brand or you see uh, a company, another company doing a really cool thing. You know what? Let us know. Go check them out. Maybe they do have some marketing people that could be a fit for us. That makes me think of um, one company that gives people like Starbucks gift cards with the idea that, and this is pre-pandemic, but yeah. everybody gets a Starbucks gift card so that they can take potential new employees out for coffee. Oh, great. And when you have depleted your card, you just go in and you say, oh, I need another card, you know, and it's and, and you get another one for $20, yeah. 50 bucks, whatever, you know, and uh, with this idea that like everybody should always be like, you know, in that mode. And, and like, you know, if talent is your most important thing, your calendar should reflect it. You know, that's Correct. it's just a thing. I very much believe in looking th at things differently. You know, I think that's also why I'm in marketing. You know, there's not just one playbook. And so if you can, let's say it again, my 10 to 15% rule, okay, well, let me try something different. Let's look at a completely different profile and maybe that's what we need. I love that idea of taking, you know, that same idea of like, you know, 20% of your budget is spent on, you know, wild and crazy things that might or might not work. But think about that in terms of a team. Like if you hire 10 people, well, one can be, one or two can be really like kind of the, the squint profiles, I like to yeah. say, where you kind of look yeah. your, to turn your head to the side and maybe it works great, maybe it doesn't, but, you know, it's somebody really different. One of the things, too, that I need to do the plug here for the interns, I tend to 
and I've done this for the past 15 years, I tend to hire interns that are sophomores or juniors in college. And then we ask them to stay through the summer. So they'll work full time over the summer. And then we ask for about 15 hours a week during the school year. We're totally flexible on their hours and their days. I even move my staff meeting based on their schedule. Once they get their schedule each semester, we'll move it so we can accommodate it. We always tell them, you know, you need to study for exams, take the week off, spring break, whatever. But by keeping them, you get this continuity. And then you have these rock star people that are completely trained and ready to go right out of school. So that's another thing with hiring that, you know, there's hiring right out of school. And then there's hiring right out of school, somebody who's just spent the last 18 months with you. Um, Very funny story. My head of demand generation right now who works for me was my intern 10 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So awesome. Oh, yeah. I love that. It's like, yeah, we have this talent pipeline problem. So fix it by kind of training up people now and and being the trainer and then the person that kind of, you know, catches them as they come out of school. Well, and they do kind of also self-select. Like if they really love it, they stay. Some of them sometimes will say, no, I want to go try another company. But the idea of having uh, an intern for one semester, I think is personally, you know, it's like training somebody up for three months or even six months and then they're gone versus if we can hang on to them and they want to stay with us. We tend to invest a lot of them and it, you know, it usually pays off. Final question for you, Kristen. Do you have a favorite interview question? that you ask that you find really revealing? I don't know if it's revealing, and I feel bad when I ask it, by the way, but I ask it for clarity of thought. And I ask them, if you were me, why, sh- why should or why, would I- why should I hire you? Mm-hmm. And so kind of at the end of the interview and they're through it and then they're like, okay, we're just about done. And then you hit them with that one. And, but I think it, to me, it, it is not as much what they say, but can they articulate in very succinctly in about what I'll call three bullet points, what their differentiators are. And the reason I ask it is also it shows me if they've got the marketing, what I'll call gene, because a marketing person will think about that question in terms of their value proposition and what makes them different. And so if they can communicate it in that way, I know that they kind of live and breathe marketing. It's not as much actually what they say in terms of, you know, the three or four or five things. But if they're all over the map and they say 27 things, or if they don't distinguish as differentiators or strengths, or if the things they say are things that are very, I would call copyable or, or not benefit-driven, it just helps me distinguish that in one answer. And I, I, again, I feel bad asking it, but by the way, I don't, it's not a pass-fail question. Because I also know if I've just had a, a wonderful interview with them and for some reason that that question, you know, maybe they struggle a little bit, you know, you also, you just don't know what kind of day somebody's had. You don't know if they're distracted. You don't know. So I don't, it's not a pass fail thing, but 
it is something as part of the interview that I, I think is an important question to ask and have them answer. That's a really interesting one because I feel like so many marketers are really crappy at marketing themselves. Even plenty of CMOs that myself and so I was going to say and, myself included, <laughs> right? And maybe yeah. that's how I um, like I just you know talk about interview questions. I mean, I just think one of the hardest questions is tell me about yourself. Yeah, and uh, you know, and especially people earlier in their career. And I know I even struggle with it. I was one interview actually in the last few years. Even it wasn't that long ago, and. I started off with the professional summary. They're like, no, tell me about where were you born? I was like, okay. Uh, right. So I think that one's hard when you don't have a rapport, you don't know somebody. So I, if I do ask that question, I'm more specific and I, I qualify with, you know, tell me about yourself. You know, are you from the area? Um, what do you want to do professionally? Like I try to lead it a little bit. So, yeah, and I, I'm terrible at that question, too, but I, I have learned that it is important to have your value proposition cold as a CMO and why you're better than others. I mean, that's really your goal. And if, by the way, I'm not asked a question like that, I make sure that at the end of a meeting, an interview, that I kind of take a moment and I summarize and I convey that proactively yeah. because yeah. that's the last thing they hear. Yeah. One of the best questions CMOs have asked me in interviews is just, hey, t- looking at your, your scorecard, because there's always a scorecard, right? You mm. know, where do you see me being strong and where, what questions you think would come up or where do you see me being that's on great. the weaker side? And it's great because then I can kind of play back to them what I've heard. And then it's an opportunity for them to kind of correct any misperceptions that have come up during the previous sure. know, hour or whatever it is. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, thank you. This has been great to chat with you about yeah. all aspects of scale. And I love it. Every time I talk with you, there's always all these little kind of tactical things as well that come up that are really so revealing of the fact that you've done this for a long time in all these different settings and you really love marketing. And it's just, so. It's, oh, I always learn from talking with you and um, it's, Likewise, it's great. Likewise, Erica. Small things. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, Kristen. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Kristen Hambleton, who has steered marketing at several SaaS companies through growth and acquisitions, sharing some of her hard-won learnings for how to solve for scale. Next time on The Get, I'll speak with SaaS marketing expert Guy Weismintel. We'll talk about how to get to alignment with the board on the role of marketing and when to go fast versus when to go slow when scaling. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening to The Get. I'm your host, Erica Seidel. Hiring great marketing leaders is not easy. The Get is designed to inspire smart decisions around recruiting and leadership in B2B SaaS marketing. We explore the trends, tribulations, and triumphs of today's top marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. This season's theme is solving for the scale journey. If you liked this episode, please share it. For other insights on recruiting great marketing leaders, what I call the make money marketing leaders rather than the make it pretty ones, follow me on LinkedIn. You can also sign up for my newsletter at theconnectivegood.com. The Get is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions.